Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 44 A Roundabout Chapter Between London and Hampshire The Crawley's house in Great Gaunt Street became more brilliant than it had ever been during the late baronet's reign. The black outer coating of the bricks was removed to reveal a cheerful, blushing face. The old bronze lions at the knocker were gilded, the railings painted, and the house became the smartest in the area. A little woman with a carriage was perpetually seen about this mansion. An elderly spinster and a boy also might be observed daily. It was Miss Briggs and little Rawdon, there to see to the renovation of Sir Pitt's house, to superintend the stitching of blinds and hangings, to rummage in cupboards crammed with dirty relics and take inventories of china and glass. Mrs. Rawdon Crawley was managing these arrangements with orders from Sir Pitt to sell or buy furniture, and she enjoyed herself in this occupation. Sir Pitt had decided to renovate the house when he came to town to see his lawyers. He put up at a hotel at first, but Becky, when she heard of his arrival, went off to greet him and returned to Curzon Street with Sir Pitt in the carriage by her side. It was impossible sometimes to resist this artless little creature's hospitalities, offered so kindly and frankly. Becky seized Pitt's hand in gratitude when he agreed to stay. Oh, thank you, she said, squeezing it and gazing at the baronet, who blushed. How happy this will make Rawdon. At her house, a fire was blazing already in Sir Pitt's apartment. It was Miss Briggs' room. She was sent upstairs to sleep with the maid. Becky was sincerely happy at having him for a guest. She made Rawdon dine out once or twice on business, so that Pitt passed the happy evening alone with her and Briggs. She actually cooked little dishes for him in the kitchen. "'Isn't it a good casserole?' she said. "'Everything you do, you do well,' said the baronet gallantly. "'The casserole is excellent indeed. "'A poor man's wife must make herself useful,' Rebecca replied gaily. Her brother-in-law vowed that skill in domestic duties was surely one of the most charming of women's qualities. And Sir Pitt thought, with mortification, of a certain pie which Lady Jane had insisted on baking for him, a most abominable pie. Besides the casserole, which was made of Lord Steyne's pheasants, Becky gave her brother-in-law a bottle of white wine, some that Rawdon had brought from France and had picked up for nothing. Oh, okay. Besides the casserole, 
which was made of Lord Stane's pheasants. Becky gave her brother-in-law a bottle of white wine, some that Rawdon had brought from France and had picked up for nothing, the little storyteller said. In truth, it was white hermitage from the Marquis of Stane's famous cellars which brought a glow into the baronet's pallid cheeks. Then she gave him her hand and took him to the drawing-room and made him snug on the sofa by the fire and let him talk as she listened with the tenderest interest, sitting by him and hemming a shirt for her dear little boy. Whenever Mrs. Rawdon wished to be particularly humble and virtuous, this little shirt used to come out of her work-box. It was too small for Rawdon long before it was finished. Well, Rebecca listened to Pitt. She talked to him. She sang to him. She coaxed and coddled him, so that he found himself more glad every day to get back from the lawyers to the blazing fire in Curzon Street. And when he went away, he felt a pang. How pretty she looked kissing her hand to him when he had taken his place in the mail coach. She put her handkerchief to her eyes. As the coach drove away, Pitt, sinking back, thought to himself how she respected him, and how he deserved it, and how Rawdon was a foolish, dull fellow who didn't appreciate his wife, and how mute and stupid his own wife was compared to that brilliant little Becky. Becky had hinted every one of these things herself, but so delicately that you hardly knew where. Before they parted, it was agreed that the house in London should be redecorated, and that the family should meet again in the country at Christmas. "'I wish you could have got some money out of him,' Rawdon said to his wife moodily when the baronet was gone. "'I should like to give something to old Raggles. It ain't right, you know, that the old feller should be kept out of all his money. He might let to somebody else, you know.' "'Tell him.' said Becky, that as soon as Sir Pitt's affairs are settled, everybody will be paid, and give him a little something meanwhile. Here's a cheque that Pitt left for the boy. She gave it to her husband. The truth is, she had tried the ground about money, tried it ever so delicately, and found it unsafe. Even at a hint, Sir Pitt was alarmed, he began a long speech explaining how short of money he was himself, how the tenants would not pay, and his father's death had caused him great expenses. Oh, and the bankers and agents were overdrawn. He ended by making a compromise and giving Becky a very small sum for her little boy. Pitt knew how poor his brother's family must be. It could not have escaped his notice that they had nothing to live upon. He knew very well that he had the money which properly ought to have gone to Rawdon, and he felt, we may be sure, some secret pangs of remorse, which warned him that he ought to perform some act of compensation towards these disappointed relations. As a decent, clever man who said his prayers and did his duty outwardly through life, he was aware that something was due to his brother. However, to part with money is a sacrifice beyond almost all men who have a sense of order. So Pitt Crawley thought that he would do something for his brother, and then thought that he would think about it some other time. As for Becky, 
She did not expect too much, and so was content with all that Pitt had done for her. She was acknowledged by the head of the family. If Pitt would not give her anything, he would get something for her some day. If she got no money from her brother-in-law, she got credit. Raggles was made easy in his mind by the reunion between the brothers by a small payment on the spot and the promise of a much larger sum to follow. And Rebecca told Miss Briggs, in strict confidence, that she had conferred with Sir Pitt, who was famous as a financier, on Briggs's special behalf as to the best investment of Miss B.'s remaining capital that Sir Pitt had thought of a most safe and advantageous way in which Briggs could lay out her money, and recommended that she should have the money ready at a moment's notice to buy the shares which Sir Pitt advised. Poor Miss Briggs was very grateful, and she promised to be ready with her little cash at the proper hour. And this worthy woman was so thankful for Rebecca's kindness that she went out and bought a black velvet coat for little Rawdon, who was grown almost too big for black velvet now. He was a fine, open-faced boy of about eight, with blue eyes and waving flaxen hair, sturdy but generous and soft-hearted, fondly attaching himself to all who were good to him, to the pony, to Lord Southdown, who gave it to him, to the groom, who had charge of it, to Molly, the cook, who crammed him with ghost stories at night and with good food by day, to Briggs, whom he plagued and laughed at, and especially to his father, whose attachment towards the lad was curious to witness. Here young Rawdon's attachments ended. The beautiful mother vision had faded. For nearly two years she had scarcely spoken to the child. She disliked him. He had the measles and the whooping cough. He bored her. One day, when he was standing on the landing, attracted by the sound of his mother's voice, singing to Lord Stane, the drawing-room door opened suddenly, and she discovered the little spy and boxed his ears violently. He heard a laugh from the Marquis as he fled down to his friends of the kitchen in an agony of grief. "'It's not because it hurts me,' little Rodden gasped out. "'Only, only—' He ended in a storm of sobs. It was the little boy's heart that was bleeding. Why, why mayn't I hear her singing? Why don't she ever sing to me? She does to that bald man with the large teeth. <laughs> the cook looked at the housemaid. The housemaid looked knowingly at the footman. The awful kitchen inquisition which sits in judgment in every house sat in judgment on Rebecca at that moment. After this incident, the mother's dislike increased to hatred. The very sight of the boy was a reproach and an annoyance to her. Fear and doubt sprang up, too, in the boy's bosom. They were separated from that day. Lord Steyne also disliked the boy. When they met, he made sarcastic bows or remarks, or glared at Rawdon savagely. Rawdon used to stare back and clench his little fists in return. He knew his enemy. One day, the footman found him squaring his fists at Lord Steyne's hat in the hall. 
The footman told it as a good joke to Lord Stane's coachman. That officer told the servants' hall. And soon afterwards, when Mrs. Rawdon Crawley arrived at Gaunt House, the porter and footman knew all about her, or fancy they did. It is awful, that servants' inquisition. Some people ought to have mutes for servants in Vanity Fair. If you are guilty, tremble. If you are not guilty, beware of appearances which are just as ruinous as guilt. Whether Rebecca was guilty or not, the tribunal of the servants' hall had pronounced against her. She would not have got credit had they not believed her to be guilty. It was the sight of the Marquis of Staines' carriage lamps at her door, seen by Raggles, that kept his hopes up. And so, guiltless, very likely, she was writhing and pushing onwards towards a position in society, while the servants were pointing at her as lost and ruined. Just before Christmas, Becky, her husband, and her son went to pass the holidays at Queen's Crawley. Becky would have liked to leave the little brat behind, but for Lady Jane's urgent invitations to the youngster and Rawdon's reproaches at her neglect of her son. "'He's the finest boy in England,' the father said. "'And you don't seem to care for him, Becky, as much as you do for your spaniel. "'He shan't bother you much. He shall go outside on the coach with me.' "'Where you go when you want to smoke those filthy cigars,' replied Mrs. Rawdon. I remember when you liked them, though. Becky laughed. Take Rawdon outside with you, and give him a cigar, too, if you want. So Rawdon and Briggs wrapped up the child in shawls, and he was hoisted respectfully onto the roof of the coach in the dark morning. With delight he watched the dawn rise, and made his first journey to the place which his father still called home. It was a journey of infinite pleasure to the boy, to whom the incidents of the road gave endless interest, his father answering all his questions and telling him who lived where. His mother stayed inside the vehicle with her maid and her furs and her scent bottles. It was dark again when little Rawdon was wakened up to enter his uncle's carriage at Mudbury. He looked out of it, wondering as the great iron gates flew open and at the white trunks of the limes as they swept by until they stopped before the windows of the hall, which were blazing with Christmas welcome. The hall door was flung open. A big fire was burning in the great fireplace. A carpet was down over the black flagstones. Rebecca kissed Lady Jane and Sir Pitt, but Rawdon, having been smoking, hung back from his sister-in-law, whose two children came up to their cousin, young Rawdon. While Matilda kissed him, Pitt Southdown, the son and heir, stood aloof and examined him as a little dog does a big dog. Then the kind hostess conducted her guests to the snug apartments, blazing with cheerful fires. The young ladies knocked at Mrs. Rawdon's door, pretending that they wished to be useful, but in reality to have the pleasure of looking through her bonnet boxes and her dresses, which, though black, were of the newest London fashion. They told her how much the hall was changed for the better, and how Pitt was taking his station in the county, as became a Crawley. When the family assembled at dinner, Rawdon Jr. was placed by his aunt, 
while Sir Pitt was uncommonly attentive to Rebecca beside him. Little Rawdon showed a fine appetite. "'I'd like to dine here,' he said to his aunt after the meal. "'Why?' said the good Lady Jane. "'I dine in the kitchen when I'm at home,' he replied, "'or else with Briggs.' Becky was so busy complimenting the baronet and admiring young Pitt, whom she declared to be the most noble-looking creature and so like his father, that she did not hear the remarks of her own son. Young Rawdon II was allowed to sit up until the hour when a great gilt book was laid on the table before Sir Pitt. All the servants streamed in, and Sir Pitt read prayers. It was the first time the poor little boy had ever witnessed such a ceremony. The house, improved since the old baronet's day, was pronounced by Becky to be charming. As for little Rawdon, who examined it with the children for his guides, it seemed to him a perfect palace of enchantment and wonder. There were long galleries and ancient state bedrooms. There were pictures and armor. There were the rooms in which Grandpapa died, and past which the children walked with terrified looks. "'Who was Grandpapa?' he asked, and they told him how he used to be wheeled about in a garden chair, which they showed him rotting in an outhouse. The brothers spent several mornings in examining the improvements to the place. As they walked or rode, they could talk to each other.' Pitt took care to tell Rawdon what a heavy outlay of money these improvements had caused. "'There is that new lodge gate,' said Pitt, pointing to it. "'I can no more pay for it before the dividends in January than I can fly. "'I can lend you something, Pitt, till then,' Rawdon answered rather ruefully." and they went and looked at the restored lodge, where the family arms newly scraped in stone, and where old Mrs. Locke, for the first time in many long years, had tight doors, sound roofs, and whole windows. Chapter 45 Between Hampshire and London Sir Pitt Crawley had done more than repair fences and restore dilapidated lodges. Wisely, he had set to work to rebuild the injured reputation of his house. He was elected MP for the borough soon after his father's death. As a magistrate, a member of Parliament, and representative of an ancient family, he gave handsomely to charities, called assiduously upon all the county folk, and set out to take that position in Hampshire to which he thought his talents entitled him. Lady Jane was instructed to be friendly with the Fuddlestons, the Wapshots, and the other famous baronets, their neighbours. They were invited frequently to the hall, and in return, Pitt and his wife most energetically dined out in all sorts of weather. For though Pitt did not care for joviality, yet he considered that to be hospitable was his duty. He talked about crops, corn laws, and politics with the best country gentlemen. He didn't hunt. He wasn't a hunting man. He was a man of books. But if his friend, Sir Huddleston Fuddleston, liked to meet the hounds at Queen's Crawley, he was happy to see the gentlemen of the Fuddleston hunt. 
He gave up preaching in meeting houses, went stoutly to church, called on the bishop at Winchester, and made no objection when the venerable archdeacon Trumper asked for a game of whist. When the baronet announced to the young ladies that next year he should probably take them to the county balls, they worshipped him for his kindness. Lady Jane was glad herself to go. The Countess of Southdown wrote the direst descriptions of her daughter's worldly behaviour to her other daughter, Emily, and returned to Brighton not very much missed. Rebecca, on her second visit to Queen's Crawley, did not feel grieved at Lady Southdown's absence, though she wrote a respectful Christmas letter to her ladyship, declaring that everything at Queen's Crawley reminded her of her absent friend. A great part of Sir Pitt's altered popularity might have been traced to the advice of the astute Rebecca. You, content to be a mere country gentleman? Oh, oh no, Sir Pitt. I know you better. I know your talents and your ambition. I showed Lord Steyne your pamphlet on malt. He said it was in the opinion of the whole cabinet the most masterly thing that had appeared on the subject. You want to distinguish yourself in Parliament. Everybody says you are the finest speaker in England, for your speeches at Oxford are still remembered. You want to be Baron Crawley, and will be before you die. I could read your heart, Sir Pitt. If I had a husband who possessed your intellect, I think I should not be unworthy of him. But I am your kinswoman now she added with a laugh. Poor little penniless me. <laughs> Yet who knows? Perhaps the mouse may aid the lion. Pitt Crawley was enraptured. How oh, that woman comprehends me, he said. I could never get Jane to read three pages of the mall pamphlet. She has no idea of my talents. So, <laughs> they remember my speaking at Oxford, do they? Hmm. Well, now that I represent my borough, they begin to recollect me. I will show them that I can speak and act as well as write, and the world shall yet hear of Pitt Crawley. This was why he had grown so hospitable, so kind to deans and chapters, so generous in giving and accepting dinners, so gracious to farmers on market days, and so much interested about county business. And this was why Christmas at the Hall was so gay. On Christmas Day, a great family gathering took place. All the Crawleys from the rectory came to dine. Rebecca was as fond of Mrs. Bute as if the other had never been her enemy. She was affectionately interested in the dear girls and admired their progress in music. Mrs. Bute was obliged to adopt a decent manner towards a little adventurous, of course being free to talk with her daughters afterwards about the absurd respect with which Sir Pitt treated Rebecca. But Jim, who had sat next to her at dinner, declared she was a trump and all the rector's family agreed that little Rawdon was a fine boy. They saw a possible baronet in the child, between whom and the title there was only the little sickly pale pit. The children were very good friends. Young Rawdon took command of Pitt and Matilda, the little girl and boy following him about with great reverence. His happiness was extreme.' 
The kitchen garden pleased him hugely, the flowers moderately, but the pigeons and poultry and the stables, oh, they were delightful. He resisted being kissed by the Mrs. Crawley, but he allowed Lady Jane sometimes to embrace him, and he liked to sit beside her after dinner. Rebecca, seeing that tenderness was the fashion, called Rawdon to her one evening and stooped down and kissed him in the presence of all the ladies. He looked her full in the face, trembling and turning very red. "'You never kiss me at home, Mamma." he said, at which there was a general silence and consternation and a by no means pleasant look in Becky's eyes. Rawdon Sr. was fond of his sister-in-law, but Lady Jane and Becky did not get on quite so well at this visit as on the former one. Those speeches of the child struck rather a chill, and perhaps Sir Pitt was rather too attentive to Becky. But young Rawdon never wearied of accompanying his father to the stables, where the colonel retired to smoke his cigar, Jim, the rector's son, sometimes joining them. One day, Jim, the colonel, and Horn, the gamekeeper, went and shot pheasants, taking little Rawdon with them. On another blissful morning, these four gentlemen went rat-hunting in a barn. Rawdon had never seen anything more noble. They stopped up the ends of certain drains and inserted ferrets into other openings and then stood silent with uplifted stakes in their hands and an anxious little terrier listening motionless to the faint squeaking of the rats below. When the animals bolted above ground, the terrier accounted for one and the keeper for another. Rodden, from flurry and excitement, missed his rat but half-murdered a ferret. But the greatest day of all was that on which Sir Huddleston Fuddleston's hounds met upon the lawn at Queen's Crawley. That was a famous sight for little Rawdon. At half-past ten, Tom Moody, Sir Huddleston Fuddleston's huntsman, was seen trotting up the avenue, followed by the noble pack of hounds. Next comes boy Jack, Tom Moody's son, who weighs five stone, measures four foot, and will never be any bigger. He is perched on a large, raw-boned hunter, Sir Huddleston Fuddleston's favorite horse, the Knob. Other horses, ridden by other small boys, arrive from time to time, awaiting their masters. Tom Moody rides up to the door of the hall, where he is welcomed by the butler, who offers him drink, which he declines. He and his pack then draw off into a sheltered corner of the lawn, where the dogs roll on the grass and play or growl at one another. Many young gentlemen canter up on thoroughbred hacks, spatterdash to the knee, and enter the house to drink cherry brandy and pay their respects to the ladies, or take a preliminary gallop around the lawn. Then, they collect in the corner and talk with Tom Moody about the state of the country and the wretched breed of foxes. Sir Huddleston presently rides up to the hall, where he greets the ladies before he proceeds to business. The hounds are drawn up to the hall door, and a little Rawdon descends amongst them, excited yet half-alarmed by their caresses and the thumps from their waving tails. Meanwhile, Sir Huddleston has hoisted himself unwieldily on the knob. "'Let's try Souster Spinney, Tom,' 
says the baronet. Farmer Mangle tells me there are two foxes in it. Tom blows his horn and trots off, followed by the pack, the young gents, the farmers of the neighborhood, and the laborers of the parish on foot. The whole cortege disappears down the avenue. The Reverend Butte happens to trot out from the rectory lane on his powerful black horse, just as Sir Huddleston passes. He joins the horseman. Little Rawdon remains on the doorstep, wondering and happy. During this memorable holiday, Little Rawdon gained the good graces of his married and maiden aunts, of the two little folks of the hall, and of Jim of the rectory, whom Sir Pitt was encouraging to pay his addresses to one of the young ladies, with an understanding that he should have his father's living in due course. Jim had given up green coats, red neckcloths, and hunting to prepare himself for the change in his condition. In this thrifty way, Sir Pitt tried to pay off his debt to his family. Also, before this merry Christmas was over, the baronet had screwed up courage enough to give his brother no less than a hundred pounds, an act which caused Sir Pitt cruel pangs at first, but which made him glow afterwards with generosity. Rodden and his son left the hall with heavy hearts. Becky departed with alacrity, however, and returned to London to commence those duties with which we find her occupied when this chapter begins. Under her care, the Crawley House in Great Gaunt Street was restored and ready for the reception of Sir Pitt and his family when the baronet came to London to attend Parliament. For the first session, he hid his ambition and never opened his lips except to present a petition from Mudbury. But he attended assiduously and learned thoroughly the business of the house, to the alarm and wonder of Lady Jane, who thought he was killing himself by late hours and work. And he got to know the ministers, determining to be one of them before many years were over. Lady Jane's sweetness and kindness had given Rebecca a contempt for her ladyship, which she found difficult to hide. That sort of simple goodness annoyed Becky, and it was impossible for her at times not to show her scorn. Her presence made Jane uneasy. Her husband talked constantly with Becky on subjects which he never thought of discussing with his wife. Lady Jane did not understand them, to be sure, but it was mortifying to know that you had nothing to say, and to hear that audacious Mrs. Rawdon dashing on from subject to subject, with a joke always pat. When Lady Jane was telling stories to the children, who clustered about her knees, including little Rawdon, who was very fond of her, if Becky came into the room, sneering with green, scornful eyes, poor Lady Jane grew silent. She could not go on, although Rebecca, with a hint of sarcasm, begged her to continue that charming story. On her side, simple pleasures were odious to Mrs. Becky. I have no taste for bread and butter, she would say. So, these two ladies did not see much of each other, whereas Sir Pitt daily found time to see his sister-in-law. On the occasion of his first speaker's dinner, Sir Pitt appeared before Becky in his uniform, his old diplomatic suit. 
She complimented him and admired him almost as much as his own wife, saying that only thoroughbred gentlemen could wear the court suit with advantage. Pitt looked down with complacency at his legs and thought in his heart that he was killing. When he was gone, Mrs. Becky drew a caricature of him, which he showed to Lord Steyne when he arrived. His lordship carried off the sketch, delighted with it. He had met Sir Pitt Crawley at Becky's house and had been most gracious to him. Pitt was struck by the deference with which the great peer treated his sister-in-law and by the delight with which all the men listened to her sprightly talk. Lord Steyne said he expected to hear Pitt as an orator. In the midst of these intrigues and fine parties and brilliant personages, Rawdon Crawley felt himself more isolated every day. He was allowed to go to the club, to dine out with bachelor friends, to come and go when he liked, without any questions being asked. And he and Rawdon the Younger would often walk to Gaunt Street and visit Lady Jane and the children. The ex-colonel would sit for hours in his brother's house, very silent, and thinking as little as possible. He was glad to do an errand, to go and inquire about a horse, or to carve the roast mutton for the children's dinner. He was cowed into laziness and submission. Delilah had imprisoned him, and cut his hair off, too. The bold young blood of ten years back was subjugated and turned into a torpid, middle-aged, stout gentleman. And poor Lady Jane was aware that Rebecca had captivated her husband, although she and Mrs. Rawdon my-deared each other every day they met. Chapter 46 Struggles and Trials our friends at Brompton, meanwhile, were passing their Christmas in a manner not so cheerful. Out of her income of a hundred pounds a year, the widow Osborne had been in the habit of giving up nearly three-fourths to her father and mother for the expenses of herself and her little boy. With a hundred and twenty pounds more from Joss, this family of four— attended by a single Irish servant who also worked for the clubs, might manage to live in decent comfort. Sedley still maintained his ascendancy over the family of Mr. Clapp, his ex-clerk, while Clapp still respected Mr. Sedley, and would not allow that gentleman's character to be abused by anybody. He owed him everything, he said. After his master's disaster, Clapp had very soon found other employment. Such a little fish as me can swim in any bucket, he used to remark. Out of the small amount of her income which Amelia kept, she used all possible thrift and care to keep her darling boy dressed in such a manner as became George Osborne's son and to pay for the little school to which, after much reluctance and many secret pangs, she had sent the lad. She had sat up at nights spelling over grammars and geography books in order to teach them to Georgie, and had even worked at Latin, fondly hoping that she might be able to instruct him in that language. To part with him all day— to send him out to the mercy of a schoolmaster's cane and his schoolfellow's roughness was painful to her. 
He, for his part, rushed off to school happily, longing for the change. That childish gladness wounded his grieving mother, who then repented of selfishly wishing her own son to be unhappy. Georgie made great progress in the school, which was kept by a friend of his mother's admirer, the Reverend Mr. Binney. He brought home numberless prizes and told his mother stories every night about his school companions, so that Amelia learned to know every one of the boys as well as Georgie himself. At night, she used to help him in his exercises and puzzle her little head over his lessons. Once, after a combat with a master smith, Georgie came home with a black eye and bragged to his mother and his delighted grandfather about his valor in the fight, and Amelia has never forgiven that smith to this day, though he is now a peaceful apothecary. In these quiet labors, the gentle widow's life was passing a silver hair or two marking the progress of time, and a line on her forehead deepening a little. All she hoped for was to see her son as great and glorious as he deserved. She kept his copybooks and drawings and showed them to her little circle as if they were miracles of genius. She gave some of these specimens to Miss Dobbins to show to Miss Osborne. George's aunt, who might show them to Mr. Osborne himself, to make that old man repent of his cruelty towards him who was gone. All her husband's faults she had buried in the grave with him. She only remembered the noble husband, so brave and beautiful, who had died gloriously. We have seen how old Mr. Osborne daily grew more violent and moody, and how his daughter, with her fine carriage, was a lonely, miserable, persecuted old maid. She thought often of the beautiful little nephew, and used to look out for him as she took her solitary drive in the park. Her sister, the banker's wife, occasionally condescended to pay a visit with a couple of sickly children and urged Miss Osborne to make her papa do something for the darlings. Little Frederick should go into the guards, and how was the dear little girl to be provided for? Then Mrs. Bullock would gather her starched nurslings and simper back into her carriage. But every visit which he paid to her family was more unlucky for her. Her patronage annoyed her father. Poor Amelia, guarding her treasure at Brompton, little knew how eagerly some people coveted it. On that night, when Jane Osborne had told her father that she had seen his grandson, the old man had made no reply, but he had shown no anger and had bade her good night in rather a kindly voice and he must have made some inquiries of the Dobbin family about her visit, for a fortnight later he asked her where was her little French watch she used to wear. She had given it to Georgie. I bought it with my own money, sir, she said in a great fright. Go and order another like it, said the old gentleman, and lapsed again into silence. The Mrs. Dobbin begged Amelia to allow George to visit them. Perhaps his grandfather, they hinted, might be reconciled to him. Surely Amelia could not refuse such advantageous chances for the boy. Nor could she, 
but she agreed with a very heavy and suspicious heart, was uneasy during the child's absence, and welcomed him back as if he was rescued from danger. She always asked him if he had seen any gentleman. He had not, until at last an old gentleman with thick eyebrows came when I was on the grey pony. He looked at me very much. He shook very much. Then Amelia knew that the boy had seen his grandfather and waited feverishly for a proposal which he was sure would follow and which came a few days afterwards. Mr. Osborne formally offered to take the boy and make him his heir. He would give Mrs. George Osborne an allowance to assure her a decent income. If Mrs. George Osborne proposed to marry again, as Mr. Osborne had heard was her intention, he would not withdraw that allowance. But the child would live entirely with his grandfather in Russell Square and would be occasionally permitted to see Mrs. George Osborne at her own house. This message was brought to her in a letter when her parents were out. She was never seen angry but twice or thrice in her life, and it was in one of these moods that Mr. Osborne's lawyer beheld her. She rose up, trembling and flushing, after reading the letter, and tore the paper into a hundred fragments. I take money to part for my child. Who dares insult me by proposing such a thing? Tell Mr. Osborne it is a cowardly letter, sir. I will not answer it. Good morning, sir. Her parents never noticed her agitation, and she never told them of the interview. They had their own affairs to interest them. Her father was always dabbling in speculation. We have seen how the wine company and the coal company had failed him, but prowling restlessly about the city, he lighted upon another scheme, which he embarked on in spite of Mr. Clapp's warnings. And as Mr. Sedley never talked about money matters before women, they had no inkling of the misfortunes that were in store for them until the unhappy old gentleman was forced to confess. The bills of the little household, which had been settled weekly, first fell into arrears. Mr. Sedley told his wife that the payments from India had not arrived, and she was obliged to go round asking the tradesmen for time. Emmy's contribution, however, kept the little company in half rations. For the first six months, old Sedley kept up the notion that his shares must rise and that all would be well. But after that time, the household fell deeper into trouble. Mrs. Sedley, who was growing infirm, wept a great deal with Mrs. Clapp in the kitchen. The butcher was surly, the grocer insolent. Once or twice little Georgie had grumbled about the dinners, and Amelia, who would have been satisfied with a slice of bread for her own dinner, saw that her son was neglected and bought little things out of her private purse to keep him healthy. One day, when Amelia was about to pay her money over, she proposed to keep a part back to buy a new suit for Georgie. Then it came out that Joss's payments were not made, that the house was in difficulties, which Amelia ought to have seen before, her mother said, but she cared for nobody except Georgie. At this, Amelia passed all her money to her mother without a word and returned to her room to cry her eyes out. 
she had to cancel the order for the clothes on which she had set her heart for Christmas Day. Hardest of all, she had to break the news to Georgie, who made a loud outcry. Everybody had new clothes at Christmas. The other boys would laugh at him. She had promised him new clothes. The poor widow had only kisses to give him. She darned the old suit in tears and hunted about among her little ornaments to see if she could sell anything to raise the money. Oh, there was her Indian shawl that Dobbin had sent her. She remembered once going with her mother to a fine India shop which dealt in such things. Her eyes shone with pleasure as she thought of this. Hiding the shawl under her cloak, she walked flushed and eager to the shop, so that many a man turned and looked after her rosy, pretty face. She calculated how she should spend the proceeds. Besides the clothes, she would buy the books that he longed for, and pay his half-hour schooling, and she would buy a cloak for her father. She was not mistaken as to the value of the major's gift. It was very fine, and the merchant made a good bargain when he gave her twenty guineas for it. Amazed with her riches, she bought her purchases and went home exulting, and she pleased herself by writing in the flyleaf in her neatest little hand, George Osborne, a Christmas gift from his affectionate mother. She was going from her room with the books in her hand to place them on George's table when she and her mother met in the passage. The little volumes caught the old lady's eye. What are those? Some books for Georgie, Amelia replied. I promised them to him at Christmas. Books, cried the elder lady indignantly. Books, when the whole house wants bread. Books, when to keep you and your son in luxury and your dear father out of jail. I've sold every trinket I had. Oh, Amelia, you break my heart with your books, and that boy of yours whom you are ruining, though part with him you will not. Oh, Amelia, may God send you a more dutiful child than I have had. There's Jos, deserts his father in his old age. And there's George, who might be going to school like a lord, while my dear, dear old man is without a shilling. <laughs> Hysterical sobs ended Mrs. Sedley's speech. Oh, mother, mother, you told me nothing. I, I promised him the books. I, I only sold my shawl this morning. Oh, please take the money. Please, please take everything. And with quivering hands, she took out her silver and her precious sovereigns, which she thrust into the hands of her mother. Then she went into her room and sank down in despair and utter misery. She saw it all now. Her selfishness was sacrificing the boy. But for her, he might have wealth, status, and education. She had only to speak the words, and her father was restored, and the boy raised to fortune. Oh, what a conviction it was to that tender and stricken heart. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. 
This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.